All right, if we start making our way back to our seats. So if you got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. We're jumping over for tonight out of the book of Luke into the uh, book of Romans. Um, like I said earlier, zooming in just on a, on a separate concept, separate passage, um, thinking about themes surrounding the, the uh, sanctity of life Sunday. So Romans chapter 8. Who was it? I was talking to somebody, Ava. Ava, yeah, Romans chapter 8 is a lot of people's favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Um, And it's one of my favorite chapters as well, but some beautiful stuff in it. But um, some great stuff right in the middle, verses 12 through 17, dealing with adoption. So let's read those passages. So uh, Paul writes, starting in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we come before you, um, God, giving you thanks for all your many blessings, thanking you for uh, the ways that you move and minister in our lives. God, thanking you for the blessings of our nation and our community. Of, of family and of friends. God, we ask that you would, God, work through all of these things. God, that you would draw people to yourself as we, as we ask each week that you would bring revival to our homes, to our church, to our community, to the churches of our community. Father, we pray that each week as, as your word goes forth, um, in, in Sunday school classes and pulpits, God, in small groups and in Bible studies, uh, God, we ask that you would use it, um, as, as the means by which your spirit works, um, that you would open people's eyes to their own sinfulness, that you would open people's hearts, um, to, uh, your great mercy found in Jesus Christ. God, that you would wake us up to the calling that you have on our lives to live in faithfulness. God, that you would just do a great work in our own time. Father, we look to church history and we see um, so many times uh, throughout uh, the history of your church, God, that you have moved in unique and spectacular ways where you have um, drawn large numbers of people to your son. Um, God, we actually know that you were doing that even today in many places in the world, and yet we ask to be a part of that. We ask that you would do that in 
our country and in our community and in our time. God, we know that there may be things that are impediments to that in our own hearts. And so we ask that you would uh, show us those things, that you would convict us of those things, and that we would uh, turn in repentance and that that would be um, the beginning of of the work that you would do uh, in our lives. God, we thank you for all your many blessings and how you continue to work um, even in small ways in our lives. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would use it to shape your people, that we would understand it rightly, that we would believe it, and that we would live according to it. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so so we we, we jump into a passage that was a little bit off topic, um, at least in terms of our study of the gospel of Luke. And again, I wanted to um, honor, there's not many days of the year that I step away from our primary text or whatever we're going through, um, but there's a few during the course of the year that I go, you know what, this is a um, something that's important enough in in the life of our country and the life of the church that I want to to zoom in in a particular way on. And when it comes to the sanctity of human life, when it comes to the issues that have surrounded um, the the uh, issue of abortion in our country over the last uh, fifty years, and when it comes to um, the different issues that come alongside that. Uh, like adoption, like fostering, like um, caring for the orphan, which we talk about. So we've talked about recently with the, the idea of the so uh, ministry of sojourners, orphans and widows, right? There is a particular um, emphasis, as we say often, placed on orphans, placed on those whose families have um, uh, turned them loose, abandoned them um, for some reason, Um so we need to be a part of that. We need to keep those issues fresh in our hearts and minds. And so what I wanted to do tonight is maybe something a little uh, odd is, is I want to talk about adoption, but I don't want to talk about specifically about adoption in our world. Okay. I'm not doing a sermon on the fact that um, we need to adopt children in our world, although that is partially an implication of the passage that we'll come to. What I want to talk about is that adoption is, a way of saying it is adoption is a gospel issue. Um, adoption is sort of the reason it is the end to which God is working things. Uh, there's a very real sense in which adoption is the gospel, the message of the gospel. And we're going to kind of see that as we go throughout tonight. And so really what I'm looking at tonight is God's adoption of us um, as a foundation for how we should think about those issues in, in the world around us and how if we will let these things work in our hearts, that they will give us a greater concern for the ways that we can serve and help in those things. And so just kind of beginning at, 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 at the, the beginning. Okay. Here's something interesting. And it's kind of a, a weird thought that maybe, um, you come across these kind of things every once in a while in the scriptures is that the very idea of applying the word adoption in, in a theological context, applying the word adoption as to say this is what God does to people is an innovation, you could say almost, of the New Testament. Um, the, as far as we can tell, and obviously we don't have every piece of literature out there in the world, but Paul is pretty much the first person to primarily use the language of the fact that we are being adopted by God. 
You don't see that in other contexts. Like you don't see stories about the Greek gods adopting children. They don't use that language, okay? Um, it, it's, it's interesting that Paul recognizes something and says, I'm going to take this language and apply it to the relationship that we have um, with God. And so we, we look to the ancient world, and adoption in a physical sense was very much a part of the ancient world. The, the Greco-Roman world, adoptions were common. Um, we see it in the Greeks. The Greeks have an adoption process, but the Romans in particular have a very um, elaborate process of adoption. It involved going through sort of this ceremonial emancipation from your original family. So uh, if, a, if a man was adopting a, a son or something, it would go through this process of saying, hey, that son is no longer bound to the, his family of origin. He doesn't have responsibilities there. Um, he, they don't have any authority over his life. If there were still parents living who, who he was, uh, you know, who were his birth parents or whatever, they no longer had the same authority in his life anymore. And then you would transfer them into the adoptive family and to the adoptive father, making him a legitimate son of that father, making him a legitimate heir to them. And so some scholars, when they listen to Paul's language about adoption, they say, well, that's where he's getting this idea from. He's looking to the Greco-Roman world. And there are some similarities and there's some particularly rich imagery there, especially the ideas like the idea of being emancipated from your old life and put into a new life, right? Being freed from sin and being adopted into the family of God. So there's some imagery there, but the reality is, is this, is probably Paul is not drawing most of his illustration from the Old Testament, I mean, from the New Testament world. He's drawing it from the Old Testament scriptures, okay? Um, he's drawing it from the concepts that we find in the Old Testament of the idea that the messianic figure that was coming, that this man who would be the son of God, there would be a way in which we would be united to him in such a way that God would treat us with the same relationship that he treats the Messiah, okay? So we can go to different places in the Old Testament scriptures and, and find different concepts relating to that. But let's just zoom in on just like a, a very obvious one. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is about to have uh, or is, is going to have a son who's going to be Solomon, and a prophecy is given in, in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, you sh who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right. Now, as in so many things, that was talking about Solomon. God was talking about an earthly child, Solomon, who would be the king that followed David. But as obvious the language with this kingdom that is forever, this throne that is established forever, it's bigger than that. Um, that Solomon is a type, he's a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. And this picture there, especially in verse 14, that I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That is the image that we see. That we see. And so that's probably the real language that Paul is drawing on as he uses this word throughout his New Testament letters of adoption, of the fact that we are adopted into God. We are adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. So again, it's not wrong for us to say, in fact, it's completely correct to say that God only has one son. 
Jesus is God's son, right? There, he has no other children at one level. And yet, because we are in Christ, because we are incorporated in Christ, we are counted as children of God in Christ, but only in Christ. So Israel understand that this adoption formula included the people of God who in the end times would be united to the Messiah somehow. So not just with the Messiah, but in and through the Messiah. So they, again, they understood these things in, in shadows. They're, how it was all going to play out, they didn't quite understand. But they recognized that this Messianic figure would be a son of God. And that if you were united to the Messiah, then you would be incorporated with him um, into that relationship. So again, you could say Paul invents this language, but he doesn't really invent it. He just adapts it from the biblical imagery that we already see in the Old Testament. The idea of this adoption of, as the sons of God through the sonship of the Messiah. Okay. Now we pause right there because it, it, that's the only way sonship happens. Even in the Old Testament, it's always connected to the Messiah. And why that's important is it exposes a presumption on the part of modern man, even sometimes the modern church, where we talk about God as if his adoption is universal. We talk about God like he is the father of all mankind. For all people, for all places, at all times. But here's the deal. That is not the case. That is inaccurate. Um, that is untrue. God is not the father of all people at all times in all places. God is father to those who are found in the Messiah who is the true son of God. Old Testament or New Testament. So in the late 1900s, there was this, this movement that started gaining steam in Western Christianity. It was mainly centered around the, the nation of Germany um, and the German theologians that were, were speaking and teaching in that time. But this was basically the beginning of what came to be known as, as the, the liberal Christian movement, right? And so um, there were all kinds of things going on. It was characterized by a, a general humanism, like a focus on man instead of focusing on God. It focused on a universalist idea, the idea that salvation that God brought was for all humanity, not just for people who believed a certain thing or, or whatever like that. Um, there were practical aspects to the reason why these things were happening. Travel was increasing. Um, people were meeting people from other countries and other religions and things like that and starting to feel uh, less confident in saying that there was the one true faith of Christianity when you had all these good Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and things like that. And so, so people began to, to question their own beliefs because of sort of the shrinking of the world. That liberalism that arose in the late 1800s became the reason for the fundamentalist movement. Okay. So you hear about fundamentalist Christians and the fundamentalist movement sometimes in, in different circles. It is, it exists as a reaction against the liberal movement, right? And so um, it, it's it's something that we are still feeling the effects of today. And those the, the the liberal scholarship and the liberal theology that comes from those things. But one of the key ideas that was put forward 
in that, that mindset, in that liberal view of, of Christianity, of the scriptures of God, was this concept right here. And I've mentioned it before. It was the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Right? So they were saying to the world, hey, there is, God is all of mankind's father. And we, as mankind, are all brothers under that father. Now, those are ideas that I think have become so widely and generically accepted that even sometimes in Christian circles, we talk that way, okay? When we, sometimes we, you will hear people in the way they evangelize and they will talk to non-believers in terms of God being their father, which is not accurate, okay? Um, God does not relate to someone who is not in Christ as father. There's something, there's, there's a piece that has been missing there. Remember, even when Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders, Jewish leaders who in general have been a part of the people of God, right? What does he say? He says, your father is the devil. You've been following, uh, he doesn't in, in any way present this idea that, oh, well, just because you're a human being, God is your father. No, he says, no, your, your father is the devil. Um, even though they are Jewish, uh, part of the Jewish nation. And so we've kind of, um, we have done that. We have, we have taken the blessing that is adoption in Jesus Christ and we have applied it to generically to all of mankind. And it's just not in the Bible. That's not what we a picture. And this is what we do see. We do see the universal creatorhood of God. Okay. So it is right to talk about the fact that God is creator of mankind. King of mankind, God Almighty of mankind, but he is not father to them. And it's also right to talk about the weird way of saying it, but the neighborhood of, of, of man, right? We are all neighbors, whether regardless of, of ethnicity or belief or anything. Going back to thinking of the story of the Good Samaritan. Right. There, there's there's a man who is different from him in many ways, different from him ethnically and different from him religiously and different from him, probably nationality wise. And yet he is still a neighbor to that man. But it would be wrong to say that he is a brother and certainly that we have the same father. The family of God is not universal, but it's unique to those who are united to God through Jesus Christ. And we see that idea zoomed in on here in Romans chapter 8. So we're finally going to get to our text. So look at Romans chapter 8. And just notice three super obvious kind of concepts that we notice, just from at a, at a cursory glance. Starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You don't call everybody sons of God. Not all people are sons of God. Only those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. God does not relate to the world as sons. He relates to them as subjects, as creations, as servants even, but not as sons. Only those who walk by the Spirit, God counts as sons. And it's only by walking according to the spirit, which is analogous to being in Christ and Christ being in you, that you're counted as a son of God. It's a key piece is that 
We are only counted as sons. God only treats us as sons and relates us to us as sons in Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, we've said this probably many times before. If you're in here right now and you're like, uh, Ash, I'm a lady and you keep on using all this son language, shouldn't you be saying sons and daughters or something to that extent? And the answer is, in a couple of places in the New Testament, it does use the language of sons and daughters. But in general, we don't use that language. We just use the language of sons. But that's not because we're eliminating daughters. What we're saying is even daughters are being treated as sons. Because in the ancient world, in a world of primogenitor, where you have the firstborn son is the one who inherits everything, uh, the key idea here is that all those who are in Christ are treated as if they are those firstborn sons, okay? Um, and so it's not being um, uh, dismissive of, of women um, or, or uh, sexist in some way. It's actually being the opposite. It's saying that all those who are in Christ, whether they are women or men, will be treated as the world would treat sons in that time, Okay. So God relates to us as sons if we are led by the spirit, that is, if we are in Christ. Moreover, we are only allowed to relate to the father as the father if we are in Christ. So verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, so just as the spirit of God as we follow it, it, God begins to relate to us as sons. That same spirit indwelling us now allows us to relate back to him as father. More so, it even allows us to call him by that name, to cry out to him as a father. And so any of us who are parents in here, you know, you know um, the, the distinction that makes in your life, that there might be all kinds of people, kids and friends and whoever, that might say, hey, I could use your help. And yet your child's voice calling out to you saying, daddy, help me, father, help me, is it changes the whole situation. Because we walk by the spirit, because the spirit indwells us, we are able to do that. And so again, it would be, it is illegitimate for those who are not in Christ to come to God as father. So imagine walking down through the mall or whatever, and maybe this has happened to you, and somebody runs up to you and starts saying, daddy, daddy, and treating you as if you were their father, and you're sort of like, I, I, I don't know what to do exactly, because why? Because I'm not your dad. I, I can't relate to you the way I would to my own child. Right. Um, because there's a special relationship there. The reality is, is that there is a special relationship of the believer to God. And it comes through walking by the spirit, being found in Jesus Christ. Again, Galatians says it sort of in a in a, a pretty similar way, but makes a distinction. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying father or Abba. And in verse seven, so you are no longer slaves, but sons. OK. Without Christ, we continue as slaves before God. And what I mean by that is our relationship to him is as a king to a, to a subject or a master to a servant. And yet when we are in Christ, that relationship shifts where we are not subjects anymore. Although obviously he is still our king. And so we still have an aspect of that relationship. But now the thing that most describes us is he is our father and we are his children because the father 
has a son, Jesus Christ, and we have been found in Jesus Christ. All right. And so God relates to us as sons. He, we relate to God as father. And then finally, there at the bottom of Rome, uh, that passage of Romans, that adoption that we have makes us heirs with God or, or, or to God. Our sonship opens us up to heirship because being heirs is another aspect of adoption that is mind blowing. The reality is, is not all sons necessarily are heirs. Okay, we know, it's funny, we were watching uh, Sense and Sensibility last night, um, the Jane Austen book that is a movie. And the beginning of the movie, what happens is uh, this man has these children. He has a son from a first marriage, and he has three daughters from a second marriage. And in that culture, in that society, the way the inheritance worked is the son got everything. And those three girls were left penniless, basically. That's the reality. Not all children are heirs in every single situation, okay? But in Christ, as the children and sons of God, we are all heirs with Christ. That's a crazy thing. So Hebrews puts it this way. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God has spoken to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. Through Christ, the whole world was created. And in Christ, all things belong to him. And guess what? If Christ is the heir of all things, then Romans 16 says, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All that is Christ's is ours now. That is nuts. Okay. That is one of those things that you just sort of go, oh yeah, I'm a child of God now or whatever. And you go about your day. That is bonkers. Okay. Um, I love, I love J.I. Packer. Um, some of you guys are familiar with him. You may not be. J.I. Packer was a Anglican evangelical writer, mid part of the last century. He, he actually just died like last year, maybe the year before that. He was almost pushing a hundred years old, but just sort of this stalwart Christian gentleman like of the last century. Okay. I love his writing and he makes, I'm going to quote him a couple times here. So he says this. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Okay, take hold of that phrase for a second. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. That's a strong thing to say, J.I. Packer. To be right with God, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. Okay, we talk a whole lot about justification, particularly in the Protestant world, right? Talk a lot about justification. The Reformation was fought over issues of justification to a large extent. Okay, but man, Packer says, if that is the height of our understanding of our relationship with God, then we're missing something because adoption is the height of it. So again, it's not inaccurate to say that all things are done, all things exist for the glory of God, but we also recognize that his glory is tied to his saving of us and the adoption that comes from that. 
In fact, Packer, again, makes a comment that I think is a good little quotable thing, a nice little idea that we can hold in our heads. He says, if you had to summarize the entire message of the New Testament in three words, he says it would be adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. Being welcomed into the family of God through the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the gospel. But again, I think probably the case is, is that many of us, what we might do is we might talk about these things and say, no, just it would be justification through propitiation. That's the message of the New Testament. And, and again, Packer says, I think you're missing something. That being brought into the loving care and being able to go to God, not just as the Almighty, not just as King, not even just as Creator, but as Father, is the goal to which God is working all those he is saving. Hebrews 2 uses the phrase, and we even sang it tonight, bringing many sons to glory. That is the end to which God is working, bringing many children into his family. And again, even that passage in Hebrews 2, the larger context of it is talking about the fact that we are now brothers with Christ, that God's one true son, we are now brothers with him because of this process of adoption. We are told that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the suffering of the cross. What was the joy set before him? It was us, right? We were the joy set before him. The fact that we were going to be brought into the family of God, the adopting mission of God is the joy that was set before Christ. Even all the way back to creation, what's the first commandment that we are given from God? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. There's a sense in which Even that beginning is a picture of what God wants to do. What does he tell us to do? And go out and form families. Go out and make people and create families. More than that, create culture and civilization and everything, but make families. You want to know why? Because that's an image of what God is doing in history. God is making a family for himself. He's drawing people in, his children, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so all these words that we use and all the different aspects of salvation are incredible. We are redeemed, okay? We are bought out of slavery to sin. That's an incredible thing. We are atoned for. That means our sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. We are justified. That is, we are set in right relationship with God judicially through atonement and the imputation of his righteousness. All distinct, all incredible, all things that we could have never accomplished on our own or hoped for. And yet, adoption sits at the top of all of them. One more J.I. Packer quote. We are not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of his loving and exalting us sinners as he loves and exalted the Lord Jesus sounds ludicrous and wild. Yet that, and nothing less than that, is what adoption means, right? That's the reality, the thing that we hold on to. It is crazy that God would bring us and welcome us into his family, and yet that's exactly what he has done. That is the incredible truth of adoption that should blow us away, okay? And so, kind of in closing, right, as I told you, we're, we're not, we're not going to stay a whole a long time tonight, but 
But that, the adoption that we have in, in Christ, in God through Christ, is the groundwork to change our own hearts when it comes to issues that relate to adoption in the physical world, okay? In our day-to-day world. Because the reality is this, adoption is a gospel-centric act. The gospel culminates in God adopting people into his family through Christ. The gospel is the rescue of the lost through sacrifice into the family of God. Again, as Packer puts it, it is adoption through propitiation. And I think this is the case. And, 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 and obviously, this is, you could disagree with this. But I'm not sure if there is any single act that so clearly images or symbolizes or incarnates the gospel as adoption. Again, you would probably say, well, Ash, what about marriage? And I go, okay, fine. I, you know, there's a good argument for that, right? But the idea of taking someone who is without family and without hope and sacrificing to such an extent that you bring them into the love of your family for life, that's a pretty good picture of the gospel. So if we are gospel people, we should be adoption people. Now, again, does that mean that every single one of us will actually physically adopt someone, a child into our family? The answer is probably no. Okay, because all of us are in different situations. Um, people have different financial situations. People have different living situations. There might be many people in this room who you would go and attempt to foster a child or adopt a child, and they, they would say, no, you can't, um, because of some kind of situation in your life, okay? Um, you're, you're not in a good position to do that. So, again, that's not the point. It's, it's not a point to say, hey, this is something that everybody um, should should be a part of to that level. But I think it is to say that we should take up, that we should reorient our minds and hearts and outlooks around the issues that surround this. Again, just as we've talked about for years, we're supposed to have a special concern for the orphans in this world, for those who don't have families, because God cares about those who don't have families, because God has cared about you. And you didn't have a family. You were welcomed into your true family. That is the family of God through Jesus Christ. So I confess, again, this is in no way uh, me me pointing fingers or anything like that. My family, man, we've gone back and forth. We've talked about these things and bounced ideas off and considered things and and then backed off and then moved forward and then backed off. And and, and we've done that for, for a long time. So I'm not, this is not one of those sermons um, in any way, shape or form that's intended to lay any kind of guilt trip on anybody. But there are numerous ways that we could be more adoption minded, even if we're not personally adopting ourselves. And it may be the case that God is stirring some of our hearts here. Obviously, I know for a fact that some people in here are already involved in different ways in those kind of ministries and serving in those callings. 
And praise God for that. But it may be that God is calling us who are not to greater levels of service and sacrifice, whether directly or indirectly related to these things. And obviously the connection to all of this with Sanctity of Life Sunday is because I continue to believe that if abortion is less of an issue in our country, then the needs of children without homes is going to rise. Okay. Unless God does some kind of incredible uh, movement in our culture where sexual morality changes significantly from what it currently is, which obviously he could do, but I, it would have to be something like a revival for that to happen. Then the, then the odds are is people are going to continue to live in a, a sexually irresponsible way. And that is going to produce children. And if they cannot or choose not to end the life of that child, then there are going to be more children who need families. So again, we will see how these things progress in the coming years. We're all revolving around these issues with, with uh, the, the turning back of Roe versus Wade. But it's something that we should aim our hearts towards. And that's all that I would ask you to do. That you would think on them and pray on them, look for ways that you might be able to serve and help and sacrifice um, for these situations. Particularly, maybe as we as we continue to do stuff with with uh, sojourners and orphans and widows, um, that we will have opportunities to meet those kind of needs even in our own community in different ways. Um, but let's go to the Lord in time of prayer. Um, just asking that God would would work in our hearts. Um, that he would impress upon us the incredible blessing that we have in Jesus Christ as adopted children. That every single one of us in here who is a follower of Jesus is an adopted child of God. What an incredible blessing. And should we not find ways to turn that blessing into blessings for other people? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, what kindness you have shown us that while we were the rebellious, while we were the those who had um, turned away, while we were the ones who had, um, much like the story of the prodigal son, that we had um, abandoned um, our our home and responsibilities, that we had rejected um, your rule over us. God, despite all of our sin, despite all of our shortcomings, you have loved us, you have sought us, you have saved us by sending your own son. God, that he has come into the world to give his life as a payment, to give his life as a sacrifice so that we could be reconciled, that we could be justified, that we could be adopted and welcomed into your family. God, the difference that it means that we are your children and not just your subjects is all the difference in the world. It is 
the greatest blessing. It is uh, the highest good that you could bestow upon us. So God, we thank you that we can call you father, that we can address you as father, that we can come to you as father. God, that you care for us as father and provide for us as father. God, that just like God, Father should be that you will never turn your back on us. That you will always and in all ways work for our good and our blessing and our salvation. God, what an incredible thing it is to be called your child. We thank you for that. We ask that you would help us to uh, love our neighbor in such a way that they become children of God that you would help us to reach out to those who are also without family, without father. And that while we can't be a heavenly father, certainly we can be an earthly father for those people. We thank you. God, we praise you. We ask that you work these things in our hearts and consciences to your glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
see you. We'll be back in, in Luke next week. Um, parents, as you go next door to pick up your kids, if you've got a zero to two, then you'll go to the main door um, over on this side. If you've got a kid who's three to seven or over, um, you'll go to the parking lot side door um, on the end of the building. Cool. Um, and you'll check out there. Um, again, thanks for being here. Good to see you. Have a great week. Uh, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you. Give you peace. See you next week.